Good morning, if you would. Grab a Bible. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we'll begin this part of our worship. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We have a great number of visitors here this morning. We want you to know that we're so excited that you're here. We're thankful for your choice to attend and to be with us this morning. If you're visiting in town or you're just passing through, we want you to know we appreciate you stopping to worship God with us. Uh, if you're new to the area or you're interested in uh, what it would be like to be a part of the work that we're doing here, we'd love to talk to you about that. Just feel free to ask any one of us, and uh, we'll talk to you about that. would love to talk to you about the work we're doing uh, and have you join and be a part of our family here. Uh, it is our VBS week. I think you can probably tell uh, because of uh, the things that are going on. I decided to be down here this morning. I learned very early on in my preaching career not to be on the same stage with a camel, so I thought I would follow that rule, uh, but uh, I also, I thought that if in all my pacing and moving, I would probably kick something or we'd have to rebuild Abraham's tent. Uh, we're doing our VBS this week, uh, and I want everyone to know that everyone is invited. We're going to begin that tonight uh, at uh, 5 o'clock. Uh, we'll be here, and we'll have uh, all of this uh, will be in full force at that time, tonight at 5 o'clock, and each night, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And I want to remind you, as I said last week, that there will be classes at that time for everybody from 18 months all the way up to adults. There will be an adult class uh, that will go on. Uh, you don't have to do all the songs in the adult class. That will be okay. But uh, we want you to know that that's clear for, uh, for everyone. We want everyone to come and uh, to be a part of this week with us. That will be through Wednesday of this week. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, the text says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And if that is true, then it makes every word of Scripture important. The content of Scripture matters because the content originates with God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. But there is a problem with that because the only revelation that we have from God is actually in another language. God has spoken, and yet God has spoken in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic and a lot of Greek. And we don't really speak Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, especially the ancient varieties of those languages. That's not the, the language that we speak in and live everyday life and do business in. So when we read a verse like this from the Bible, as we have just done, what we're reading is a verse in translation. We are reading words that a translator or a group of translators have decided that the Greek word underneath this text means. And so the question naturally arises... Can we be sure that these translations are trustworthy? And I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about why we can trust our translations. The fact that what we have in our hands is not in the original language doesn't mean somehow we are kept from understanding and knowing God, particularly the words of God and what they mean. Language is a part of the human experience. In fact, the Bible teaches us that God is responsible for language. That language began on the day of the Tower of Babel when God confused languages. And so when God is going to reach out to man in whatever way, if that's going to involve a message, then it's going to necessarily have to deal with languages. 
because God made us in that way. So he's going to use a particular language and that there will be limits to that language. So how does God want us to think about this idea of how God moves and his word moves from one language to another, translation and transmission. That's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Now, remember, in this year, our theme for the year is revisiting the foundations, where we're going back and we're learning first principles again. And we spent most of the first part of this year talking about Jesus. And we went through the resurrection of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And I told you in the beginning of the year that we were going to have different periods throughout the year where we focused on different things. And we are transitioning this morning into the part of our year where we're going to focus on the Bible. And my plan is to talk this morning about translations in the Bible... Next month, my plan is to talk about the presumed errors and contradictions and discrepancies in the Bible. And then the month after that, which will be the month of August, I'm planning to talk about who decided which books belong in the Bible and which books don't. That's my plan. Here's what you need to know about plans. Plans change. But that's my plan as of right now. So that's where we're headed over the next few months. So let's talk about why we can trust our translations for a few minutes this morning. First of all, I want to show you that God can work in translation. That translation is actually a very common part of the Bible. We see this and know, in fact, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might not even recognize it when it's going on. I want to show you this in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, that over and over again, the biblical writers will do their own translating for us. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. This is a, the story of Jesus' birth. And has, it's, Matthew is describing the story of Jesus' birth. It says in Matthew 1 and verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Did you notice that at the end? Which means God with us. He has this word, Emmanuel, okay, which is a word that he feels he needs to translate for us. It means God with us. Sometimes the translation is about telling the reader what certain words mean when that word is not a part of their native language. So Matthew's writing in Greek, the word Emmanuel is Hebrew. He says, let me tell you what this means in everyday Greek. It means God with us. And this happens so frequently that we might not even notice. John 1:38. Jesus turned and saw them following, said to them, what are you seeking? And they said, I'm a rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Okay, rabbi is a word that they might not have understood in Greek. And so John takes a moment and just says, that means teacher. John 1.41, a couple of verses later, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And we might not even notice that, but Messiah is the Hebrew word for a Savior, whereas Christ is the Greek word. So his Greek readers are going to need to understand, okay, Messiah is a word we don't know. What does that mean? Well, John says it means Christ. God, over and over again in the New Testament, has writers who will translate for themselves. So uh, Ryan read the passage this morning. Golgotha means place of a skull. That's a word that his readers might not have known. Cephas means Peter, which by the way means rock. Siloam means sent. Over and over again you get these in the Bible text. But sometimes there are unique passages that preserve the original language of the Bible text. I want to show you this in Mark chapter 5. Mark 5, where you have this is what was actually said in the language in which it was actually spoken. Mark chapter 5. 
This is where Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. And it says in Mark 5 and verse 41, Mark 5 and verse 41, taking her by the hand, Mark 5, 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. So Jesus speaks to this girl in Aramaic. And if you're looking at the Greek text behind Mark, there's a reason it's not translated. It's just Talitha kumi. Okay, that is what it says in Greek, which doesn't make any sense in Greek. It's not Greek. It's a different language. Talitha kumi is Aramaic. So what you have here, Mark says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Mark preserves the Aramaic words and then translates them into Greek for his readers. He does that again. This is a very well-known passage in Mark 15, 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this Eloi, Eloi passage is probably Hebrew, although it's very similar to the way the Aramaic would have translated it, but it's probably Hebrew based on the fact that a lot of the people around Jesus at the cross don't know what he's saying and think he's calling for Elijah. But you see what he does, Mark says, this is what that means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, Jesus, in these two passages I've just shown you, is speaking in Aramaic. Although the words are so similar, they might be Hebrew in the second passage. But it's important because what that means is, Mark is saying, not just I have the gist of the words, but I have the exact words Jesus said. When he approached this little girl, he said these words in his language. And so it very much supports the idea that Mark and some of the other gospel writers are working from eyewitness testimony. They don't just say, Jesus said, you know, get up whenever you feel like it. Or so He said these two words in his language. But do you know what else that implies? It implies that every word we have from Jesus that is not in the original Aramaic is already a translation into Greek. And that's important because what that means is what we're reading is not Jesus' actual literal Aramaic words, but Jesus' words translated by the gospel writers into Greek so that they can then take that message into the Greek-speaking world. So that is done without any presumed loss of meaning or nuance, no one says, now wait a minute, we can't really understand Jesus because Jesus didn't speak Greek. No, see, what is assumed is that God is at work in translation, that even though the message has been translated into another language, God can still use that message to spread the gospel and people in other places can learn it. It's also interesting, I want you to go with me to Mark chapter 7. It's also interesting, in Mark 7 you see this, That sometimes the translation is not just words, sometimes it's customs. Mark chapter 7 and verse 2. Mark 7 and verse 2. They saw that some of the disciples, this is the Pharisees, ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washings of of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So lots of other things they do, Mark says, in explaining what Jews are like. What's going on here? He is probably not writing to Jews and saying, let me tell you what Jews are like. He is writing to a different culture and saying, if you're going to understand this story, you need to know a little bit about Jewish culture. So let me tell you, this are some of the things that they do. Uh, In the passage that Ryan read also, Mark 15 and verse 6, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. 
Okay, that was a practice, a custom that they had that if you're going to understand the story of Barabbas, you need to know about their custom. But if you're not a Jew, you might not know their custom. And so the custom is explained. That is a translation. Not a translation of text, not a translation of words, but a translation of culture. Here is what the culture is like. And if you want to understand the message, you need to know a bit about the culture. So even on the biblical level, when the the word of God moves from one culture to another, there is an understood expectation that God's still at work even though the people are different. And so as that message moves around the world, that message can still be understood and obeyed because God can still work. So what does all this mean? All that we have said just speaks to the universality of the message. It is intended to be for everyone. The message of the gospel is not just for Jews. You can see that from Mark. Mark is intending for his gospel to be written in another language, read in another language, read by people who don't know the culture, who don't know some of the words, and still understood without any loss of meaning. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And because of that expectation, there is also the expectation that translation is going to need to be a part of that. We're going to move from one language to another. This also emphasizes the content of the message over the the actual words. It is not as important what are the, the technical terms here as it is what does it mean. And that meaning can be translated across cultures and languages. The second thing I want to say about why we can trust our translations is that God can guide the process of translation. Now, since this is God's word, it really shouldn't surprise us or somehow be controversial that God could actually oversee or superintend the process of translation. But I have a very specific thing that I mean by this. I want you to stay with me as I try to talk you through this. Now, I want to begin here in Mark 7. We're open there. In Mark 7, beginning in verse 6, it says in Mark 7 and verse 6, He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So here you have a quotation. Jesus is quoting. And if you look back at the original text in Isaiah, you will see a difference. There are some differences in the way this reads in Jesus' quotation and the way it reads in Isaiah. And the reason is Jesus, or perhaps Mark as he writes down the quotation, is quoting from the Septuagint translation. He is not quoting from the Hebrew Bible. He is quoting from a translation. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that translation. In about the 200s B.C., a large group of Jewish scholars in Egypt, over here, a large group of Jewish scholars in Egypt sat down to translate the Old Testament into Greek. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, like I said, with little pieces of Aramaic, and they wanted to translate that into Greek because a lot of the Jews, particularly in that part of the world, were reading Greek and speaking Greek. And so they did. And that translation is called the Septuagint translation. I know that's a weird word. If you ever see it, you don't have to freak out. Septuagint is the Greek word for 70 because there were supposedly 70 Jewish scholars who worked on the translation. If you ever also see the abbreviation LXX okay, in your studies, that is the abbreviation for the Septuagint because LXX is the Roman numeral for 70. 
70 scholars, Septuagint, Greek translation. All right, I feel like I've talked that through. So here is the thing about the Septuagint, which was completed a couple hundred years before Jesus. New Testament writers very frequently quote from the Septuagint, which makes sense because some of them might not have spoken Hebrew at all or been able to read the Old Testament in its original form. Most of them wrote in Greek. It just makes sense for them to naturally say, oh, here's this quotation from this translation. Now, there are a lot of legends surrounding that translation. There are legends about how many people, legends about who it was for, legends about how they were all separated and they all came out with exactly the same translation. A lot of legends like that. But at the end of the day, what we have in the New Testament is a number of quotations from a translation that is presumed to be the Word of God. The fact that it is in a translation does not somehow change it. So does that mean that the translation of the Septuagint is inspired? No, I don't believe that. Does it mean that the translators are inspired? I definitely don't believe that. It means that God can guide the process of translation so that what comes out is just as inspired as what went in. Can I say that again? God can guide the process of translation so that what comes out is just as inspired, just as much God-breathed as what went in. And that means that the message can be effectively communicated through different languages. It means that it is possible for us to trust the decisions that human translators make about the meaning of a word and trust that God can be behind that process. Now, please note that this is a sharp contrast to the concept in Islam. In Islam, it is believed that unless you can understand the original Arabic in which the Quran was written, you cannot truly appreciate the grandeur and beauty. You cannot fully understand God's word. You have to learn the language in order to understand God. This is the opposite. This is to say, God can come to you where you are and you can understand his message in your own language rather than in some other. The third thing I want to say about why we can trust our translations is that there is safety in numbers. I want to talk for just a few minutes about the landscape of modern Bible translations in English, our translations. We are particularly blessed to have a number of English translations, a number of quality translations. And I want to say broadly about that, that there is safety in numbers about that. It is a good thing. It is a blessing that we have so many different translations. I know that can be overwhelming. From time to time, I have people ask me, what version would you recommend? What translation do you use? And I'll answer some of those questions in a minute. But I just want to say, I know that can be confusing, but it's good. It's good for us to have so many, and I'll show you why. So there are a number of questions that come with the idea of what translation I should use or what, what goes into that question. Uh, one of those is the idea of a textual base. That is, which manuscripts and texts are we using to get the translation? There are basically two manuscript families. I'm not going to get too technical here, but the idea is one textual family, sometimes called the Alexandrian text or the NU text or the Nestle Allon text, and the other is called the Byzantine or the majority text or received text family. So you've got two families. Okay? One of those takes the approach, what do the oldest manuscripts say? So no matter what, we've got to be old. We want to go as close as we can to the original. The other says, 
what do most of them say? What does the majority say? So we have thousands of copies of the New Testament. A lot of them look like each other. We take the majority or we take the earliest. Generally speaking, the modern translations, like the New American Standard or the ESV or the NIV, take the idea of the oldest. And so they take that certain family of manuscripts. Generally speaking, the King James Version and its New King James Version, those traditions will take the majority text approach. So that's one question, uh, is what are we working from in terms of manuscripts? Another is translation method. What's the goal of the translators? So some translators will go at it and say, we want to find every word and just go word for word, every word from the Bible, from the original to English, from the original to English. And then there are others that are much freer with their translation. And they say, you know, it's not just word for word. It's what is it, what is the point? What's the goal of the uh, biblical writer? And so we try to do a little interpretation. So what is the translator trying to do? Are you just trying to get the gist of it and then communicate it to me in English? Or are you trying to give me every word exactly? Or are you going for some blend of those two? I'm only going to recommend for serious study translations that do the very best to be faithful to the original text. That's all I'm going to recommend not to change everything for the sake of readability. We'll talk more about that in a second. There are mathematical ways to assess that sort of thing, but I'll just generally say the versions that I would recommend in terms of translation method are the American Standard and the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, the ESV, and the NIV. Now, the NIV is going to have other problems that we'll talk about in just a second, but... Those are the ones in terms of the method that I think would have the best method. But there are some Bibles that we would call paraphrases. In fact, I almost hesitate to call them a Bible. Okay? There are Bibles like the New Century Version or Good News for Modern Man or the Message or the Phillips New Testament. Uh, these are they're, they're fun to read. They're sometimes good and useful for reading. But for serious study, I would stay away because they're paraphrases. In fact, if you find a Bible that has an author on it, it's not a good sign, okay? That means it's not really a Bible. It's somebody's paraphrase of the Bible. So general rule is safety in numbers on this. If you have only one translator, that's scary because only one translator can go crazy on a lot of things, okay? Safety in numbers on this. If a Bible has an author, it's a bad sign. Theological bias is another. Uh, this is where there's a major concern for can I trust my translation? Can I trust what people are saying as they are translating these words? All versions are produced by men. All versions are going to have some level of bias in how they render a certain word, lenses through which they see the world, and we want to be as aware as we can of those biases in our translations. So there are some really egregious examples. The most egregious, in my view, is the New World Translation, which is produced by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the New World Translation will have renderings that are in no other version, no other version you can find anywhere that are particularly supportive of the Jehovah's Witnesses' pet teachings. So, for example, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, the Word was with God and the Word was a God because, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a unique teaching about Jesus that Jesus is a created being. And so they begin to translate the Bible in a way that supports that. So if you see that, that is a theological bias. They have an axe to grind, and they're going to translate the Bible so that they can grind that axe. There's another one that I mentioned, the NIV, earlier. This is also one to watch for theological bias. Particularly, there is the infamous rendering in the NIV of the word flesh, the Greek word sarx, as sinful nature. 
And so you can hear that bias in that that links us back to Calvinism and the teachings of Calvinism about sinful natures, whereas the word just means flesh. So you can see there's a bias in that rendering. And the danger in that is that when someone picks up a Bible and reads through a passage that talks about the flesh, they might begin to think that sinful nature is what is meant. And that's a translation that you have a hard time trusting because you can see very clearly the translators had some theological bias and an agenda in terms of the nature, the sinful nature versus just something that comes from the flesh. Uh, But because of that, I'm a little wary of recommending anything that I know has a theological bias or that's a very clear problematic theological bias. But no version is going to be free from that. So again, I come back to their safety in numbers. That when we set versions side by side and we say, well, this says this and this says this, it can help us so that we understand, okay, what is really intended here? Another concern is English style. How does it read? What is it like? This is one of my major concerns with the King James Version. I love you. If you love the King James Version, I still love you. We can still be friends. But I find the King James Version really hard to read. I find it really hard to read for our young people uh, and for people that don't have a lot of background in the Bible at all. I find it very, uh, it can obscure what is intended to reveal. And that's a problematic for me. But with English style, this is largely going to be a matter of taste. So you're going to have your preferences and I'll have mine. I'll just share mine since I'm the one talking right now. Uh, I don't like the New American Standard style. The way that it reads, I find it to be really awkward. I prefer the ESV. That's why I use the ESV. You guys have heard me use that. Uh, You'll have your preferences. But the point is, the idea that we want to understand it in our own language. And I want to remind you that the New Testament was written, the New Testament particularly, was written in a language that the common people could understand. It was written in a language that was not so highfalutin that nobody could get it except the scholars. And so I want to do my best to avoid a style that is so high above what people generally understand that it pushes them away. So these are the concerns about translations, and I just want to say there is safety in numbers about these things. See, we are really blessed in that we have a number of excellent translations. They have been produced by a number of excellent scholars from varied backgrounds working together. Can we really imagine, in a climate like the one we live in, a poisonous translation that keeps us from God that would somehow go unnoticed in a climate with so many different translations where so many people are working on these kinds of projects. That is a blessing from God, and there is safety in those numbers. I just want to take a moment at the end of this study and say something about the blessing of translation. This is a blessing from God. We sang the song Ancient Words, and we sing that song sometimes. And one of the things in that song that it says is martyr's blood stains each page. And I know that primarily that author is probably thinking about the martyrs of the New Testament, the apostles who died for their faith. But I cannot help when I sing that song but think about the people who suffered and died for the dream of someday producing the Bible in their own language. Do you know that for centuries, people could never read the Bible in their own language? They couldn't understand it. They didn't know what it meant. They had to rely on other people to read the Bible to them and tell them what it meant. And very often, that was a position of such power that it was abused. That people like John Wycliffe, 
who believed that Scripture was the only reliable guide to the truth about God, produced a translation. His followers were known as Bible men, which, by the way, is a great name. And John Wycliffe was posthumously condemned, his bones exhumed and burned for his work in translating the Bible into English. John Huss was burned at the stake for spearheading the translation of the Bible into the Czech language. William Tyndale completed his English translation in secret. He and many of his fellow translators were burned alive for smuggling Bibles into the country. To translate the Bible into his native language was heresy. For centuries, people were told, you can't understand this, you don't need to read this, this is not for you. The gift of translation was viewed as a threat. And even to this day, there are missionaries all over the world who work diligently for decades to produce a Bible in the language of the people to whom they want to preach the gospel. And where do we sit? We sit here with so many translations that we have an embarrassment of riches. We sit where we can have the Bible on our phone in as many translations for free, in as many translations as we could possibly ever read. What a blessing that is. And you know, as often as we think about people that have died for noble ideals, it seems to me that we should take a moment and thank God and give honor to the men and women who have died so that we could have what we so easily take for granted, the Bible in our own language. God has communicated to us. He has sent his son to die for us. He has preserved the message of the gospel through the centuries, through languages, through cultures. He has brought it down to us today so that we know what God wants from us. The question now is do we appreciate that great gift? And are we willing to accept it and give our lives over to him? there is someone here this morning who is ready to obey the gospel, to become a Christian, leaving behind a life of sin, be buried with him in baptism, have those sins washed away, we know that that offer is still there because we know that God has communicated to us through the Bible. Is there anyone here who has a need? Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.